0: And the clock has started this is 20 minutes you'll never get back welcome everyone thank you very much for tuning into 20 minutes you'll never get back my name is doug prazak and i appreciate you deciding to spend one third of an hour with me wow that sounds so much longer than 20 minutes doesn't it 20 minutes uh, a third of an hour either one thank you very much for deciding to listen to this And uh, I hope I do not disappoint you. This is episode 43. And 43 had kind of an interesting start. The other day, I was thinking about things that I have not been able to do in over a year because of COVID. You know, some things are opening up, thank goodness. I hope they're opening up wherever you live in the world listening to this. But I was thinking, what have I not been able to do? And one of the funny things that popped into my head is I have not been able to go bowling. Now, here's the even funnier part. I haven't gone bowling in 10 years. But for some reason, my, my whacked out brain said, hey, you haven't been able to go bowling. So I, I thought about that. And I thought, well, I don't know very much about bowling. Yeah, you know what happened next. I did some research, so you don't have to. Here is bowling. Okay, the earliest form of bowling known to exist has been traced back to ancient Egyptian times, somewhere around 5200 B.C. Those ancient Egyptians, they rolled stones at various objects with the goal of knocking <laughs> knocking them over. In the 1930s, British anthropologist Sir Flinders Petrie, a fantastic name, Sir Flinders Petrie, he discovered a collection of objects in a child's grave in Egypt, that appeared to him to be used for a crude form of bowling. If he was correct, then bowling traced its ancestry to 3200 BC. In the ancient chronicles of Paderborn, I just read those yesterday, uh, they revealed that the first bowling was done in covered walkways of the cathedrals. It was custom to have the parishioners place their pins at one end of the hallway. This represented the haiti, meaning the heathen. The parishioner then was given a ball and asked to throw it at the haiti. If a hit was scored, it indicated that the thrower was leading a clean, and pure life and was capable of slaying the heathen. If he missed, it meant that a more faithful attendance at services would help his aim. Or putting up the lane bumpers, that would help you too. At the conclusion of all such tests, a dinner was given, and the successful Haiti knocker-downers, they were praised and toasted. The losers were encouraged to try a little later on. According to German historian William Pele, Pele, sorry William, uh, this had its origins as early as the 3rd or 4th centuries A.D. In 1300, only three pins were used in some parts of Germany. In others, the number scaled as high as 17. Martin Luther, he was an enthusiastic bowler. Experiments convinced him that nine pins made an ideal game, and this finally settled upon as the standard for the game in Germany. When played indoors, the ball was rolled at the pins. When played outdoors, if the surface was rough, a player was permitted to choose between rolling and throwing the ball at the pins. Although all these games, you know, had their part in the development of the modern game, it's probable that one to which the sport of today is most closely aligned is the ancient game of nine pins. This game, originally played by the Dutch as well as the Germans and the Swiss, was bowled on beds of clay cinders. As the game became more popular, people would use boards, long boards. I hope they didn't get them at Home Depot because they're never straight. Anyway, they would use these long boards as sort of the lame bed. Now, pins were set up uh, this way, three pins in each of three rows, They were set up on a platform that was about 36 to 48 inches square. It was naturally impossible to hit any of the corner pins. So the pins were respotted after each ball was delivered. Now from time to time, various improvements were made such as providing a shelter over each end of the lane for participants and spectators on one end and for the individual or the uh, boy who stood at the end to set the pins up that were knocked down. Later, A small trough was placed on one side of the lane with a gradual descent from the pins to the bowlers. The pin boy would call out the number of pins that got knocked over, which was added to the score of the bowler. This was the beginning of the ball return. I'm pretty certain it didn't have that little hand air dryer thing at the end, but you know, that would come later. There's substantial evidence that a form of bowling was in vogue in England. In 1366, King Edward III allegedly outlawed bowling to keep his troops focused on archery practice. (laughs) Hey William, you want to go bowling? You know, throw the old stone around? No, I have to practice my archery. One of the more eccentric games uh, of bowling is still found in Edinburgh. The player I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around this one. The player swings a fingerless ball between his (laughs) legs. (laughs) Stop it. And heaves it at the pins. In doing so, he flops onto the lane on his stomach. Flops on his stomach after he flings a ball that was between his legs. (sighs) Finally, folks started to enclose the entire lane. So now we had the origin of the indoor bowling lane. The first is believed to have opened in London in 1455 A.D. Undoubtedly, the English and Dutch and German settlers all imported their own variations of bowling to America. The earliest mention of it in serious American literature, I guess versus the funny American literature, is by Washington Irving when Rip Van Winkle awakens to the sound of, quote, crashing nine pins. The first permanent American bowling location probably was for lawn bowling in New York's Battery Area. Now at the heart of the financial district, New Yorkers still call the small plot Bowling Green. The first appearance of nine pins in America is unknown, but about 1820, it had become generally acceptable to those who were interested in bowling. According to sports writers and sports historians, gamblers had control of the game by about 1850 especially bowling in Vegas. Just kidding. I just threw that in there. According to the Western Bowler's Journal Bowling Encyclopedia, the game was at its zenith in America in the 1840s. And in New York, bowling lanes existed on nearly every block on Broadway. During the 1860s and through their persistence of the German population, the game continued to flourish. At the same time, finger holes were cut in the nine-inch balls, and popularity grew with bowling clubs and tournaments being organized everywhere. The first uniform specifications and rules were attempted in 1875 when 27 delegates, chosen from nine bowling clubs, they met in Germania Hall in the Bowery and organized the National Bowling Association. Now, this body realized the necessity for a revision of the rules of the game of bowling and immediately appointed three members of their group who were considered expert bowlers at that time. Now, these guys were authorized by the main body to revise the rules of the game, draft new laws, and submit their action to the larger body at a future meeting of the National Bowling Association. Now, this association was limited in scope, it lacked appeal, and failed to make good. It was followed in 1890 by the American Amateur Bowling Union. This organization likewise soon disintegrated because of limitations, lack of initiative, and foresight. Now, despite the dissolution of the National Bowling Association and the Amateur Bowling Union, there remained a definite need for a governing organization for the bowling game uh, then known as American Ten Pins. Now, restaurateur Joe Thumb. You know that guy. I don't. You may. Anyway, he finally pulled together representatives of the various regional bowling clubs. And on September 9th, 1895, a group of men met at the Beethoven Hall in New York City to form such an organization. This group voted to call itself the American Bowling Congress. Now, the ABC has grown into one of the sports world's most respected organizations, Soon, standardization would be established and the major national competitions could be held. The organization established rules for 10 pins and remains firm in seeing that these rules were enforced. In those early days, bowlers banded together into clubs. They met for a weekly intra-club competition and matches between rival clubs. Now, while women had been bowling in the latter half of the 19th century, the American Bowling Congress was for men. It was in 1917 that the Women's International Bowling Congress was born in St. Louis. Encouraged by proprietor Dennis Sweeney, women leaders from around the country were participating in a tournament, and they decided to form what was then called the Women's National Bowling Association. So all these organizations got their act together, and they got rules established to play the game. Uh, While that was happening, Bowling technology took a huge step forward. Balls used to be primarily made of very hard wood, but in 1905, the first rubber ball was introduced, and in 1914, the Brunswick Corporation successfully promoted the Mineralite Ball, touting its mysterious rubber compound. Now organized with agreed-upon standards, the game grew in popularity. In 1951, another technological breakthrough set the stage for massive growth. The American Machine and Foundry Company, or AMF, they purchased the patents to Gottfried Schmidt's automatic pin spotter. And by late 1952, production model pin spotters were introduced. So it's, uh, see you later, pinboys. The machines are taking over. Today, the sport of bowling is enjoyed by nearly 95 million people in more than 90 countries worldwide. All right, I think it's time for a a break. And when we come back, let's talk about uh, those red stripes on a bowling pin. Why? And also, shoes. Every one of you undoubtedly has a headache or pain remedy that you swear by. But haven't you noticed that on some occasions it fails you? that there are times it does not seem to work. On these occasions, let me suggest that you try Anison. for here is a remedy that I'm sure won't fail you. You can get Anison at your druggist for a few cents. Your money back if you're not pleased. I'll spell the name. A-N-A-C-I-N. I'm beginning to question the intelligence of putting a headache commercial <laughs> on during the middle of my show. But, you know, if nothing else, you'll learn how to spell Anison. All right. Bowling. So bowling for the common once a year bowler, you know, like me, or once a decade bowler like me, there is a dubious and suspect side to it all. If you've ever been to a bowling alley, you know what I'm talking about. It's the bowling shoes. No one knows for sure when bowling shoes were invented. Some historians believe a leather bowling shoe may have been introduced to the United States as early as 1888. Now, in case you're new to the planet, uh, bowling alleys don't allow you to wear just any old shoes on their super slick lanes. To fix that, they offer their very own bowling shoes for rental just as soon as you walk in the door. Before you bowl, you're asked for your shoe size. Then you're issued a pair of bowling shoes to use during your games. As collateral, they usually take one of your shoes. I guess the joke's on them because they need to handle my ratty tennis shoes, so you guys are welcome to it. And who would want to steal a pair of those beautiful rental specimens anyway? All right, next comes the fun part. Sliding your foot into that pre-moistened, dark, dank layer that is the shoe. You know, it wasn't a, a fun experience pre-COVID. And these days, I don't even know, one, if bowling alleys are open or two if they still rent those previously worn 10-minute-ago shoes. They're absolutely not the most attractive shoes you've ever seen, but bowling shoes do serve an important purpose. They are usually made of a combination of leather and rubber, since bowling shoes have to have slippery soles. The slippery surface of the bowling shoe lets you slide easily along the polished wood floor of the bowling lanes. As you approach the lane to release the ball towards the pins, it's important to be able to move very smoothly. That makes your throw as controlled as possible, unless you're me, and that's what those lane bumpers are for. And now the question you've all been waiting for. Why do bowling pins have those red stripes? Now, I could answer that question in about six seconds, but I still have five minutes and 45 seconds of the show left, so you know I'm gonna drag it out. A bowling pin has a crown, a head, a neck, and a body. And those stripes, well, you usually see those placed around the neck. Uh, Al Vanderneck of the United States Bowling Congress stated, they just look funny without them. (laughs) Thanks, Al. Now, even though the birth of the red stripes is shrouded in mystery, a common myth is that the stripes originated from the AMF, American uh, something foundry. Brunswick used a crown around the neck as a brand trademark for years, and many assumed that AMF used these stripes in a similar way. However, this theory was disproved by the AMF product manager, Ron Pommenville. He said, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh, so (laughs) it's not an AMF trademark. What we do know is that the sport itself has been around for like a billion years, but the modern bowling pin is a fairly recent invention, It wasn't until Joe Thumb, you remember Joe, the American Bowling Congress guy, in 1885 he pushed to standardize the bowling pins. The modern bowling pin has been developed over the past centuries to meet the sport's specific needs, durability, scoring, and sound. A high quality pin needs to be able to withstand being knocked down by the ball. However, the only way to score is to strike down a pin so they cannot be so heavy they don't fall down. Lastly, when bowling pins fall, they make a sound that clearly indicates they have been knocked down. A lot of changes had to be made to meet these requirements. First, the bowling pins were made of a single block of maple. Nowadays, they're made out of a composite uh, bunch of blocks laminated together. Originally, the pins were coated with just one layer of white lacquer and one layer of clear lacquer. However, as mechanical pin setters became more common, the lacquer coatings proved to be too weak to hold up to that. So eventually, a seven-layer coating helped remedy that issue. Any decorative markings, like the signature red stripes, are silk-screened under the pin after the coating. Uh, These all occurred in the mid-50s to early 60s, and that would explain why the stripes became associated with companies like AMF. The design choice originated about 60 years ago and has remained popular ever since. At this point, bowling pins would simply be naked without their stripes. So there you have it. Those stripes, they're purely decorative. However, some people have said, well, you know, those stripes can help you uh, improve your game. I have no idea what that voice is. It just it just came out of me. I think this is a stretch, but this is how they say those stripes can improve your game. In the sea of white, the red stripes help set each pin apart, which is important for your accuracy. Bowling pins are set in a triangle 12 inches away from each other, and there's 10 pins all together lined up in four rows. The path to a strike is like knocking down a stack of dominoes. If the hit ball hits the pins correctly, one will knock the other one down, and so on and so on. the best place to aim is called the pocket the pocket is the space between the head pin the one pin and the three pin or the one and the two depending if you're right-handed or left-handed if you find yourself lost looking for the pocket the red stripes can serve as a guide now if you ever gone bowling before even though the pins are a foot apart they look a whole lot closer at the end of the lane additionally pins are wider at the bottom making them harder to visually separate the stripes are located much higher on the neck, which is the pin's narrowest part. So in theory, you could navigate the red stripes of the pins to find the pocket. That's what they say. I say, put the lane bumpers up, throw like a madman, let the ball zigzag, bounce back and forth across the uh, the lane there, and hope for the best when the ball reaches the pins. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. That is going to wrap up this episode. Uh, what did we learn today? Well... <laughs> We learned an early form of bowling was to throw a stone ball and knock down heathens. We learned that uh, Martin Luther was a kick-ass bowler. We learned that uh, Bowling Green in New York is where there was some greens where people did lawn bowling. (laughs) And we learned those red stripes, they're just decorations. Let it go, people. There's no hidden meaning. They're just stripes. Thank you very, very, very much for tuning in and listening. I hope it was at least mildly entertaining and you don't feel like you wasted your 20 minutes. But, you know, I was up front. You weren't going to get them back. So I hope it was worth it. And if you like it, tell a friend. Or if you didn't like it, tell a friend because, you know, they've got 20 minutes they can spare too. Thanks again. And I'll talk to you next time on 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. (coughs) Bye-bye. Hi, it's me again, Doug. I want to take up a couple more seconds of your time just to remind you if you want to stay informed of when uh, the next podcast is posted, all you need to do is sign up at uh, on that Instagram machine. It's at 20MYNGB, uh, 20MYNGB, and that means 20 minutes you'll never get back. Uh, if you sign up there, you'll uh, always see when the next podcast is uploaded. And if you want to leave some comments, by all means, please do go to the uh, website at 20minutespodcast.com so it's 20minutespodcast.com and uh, you can uh, leave your comments there it also tells you how you can be an announcer for the show so take take a look at those two things if you'd like and stay informed and I'll, as always thank you very much for listening to uh, 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back bye bye